Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. In today's podcast, you will hear from experts Charlotte Paulin and Rakesh Popat, who share some highlights from the 19th International Myeloma Society annual meeting. The experts discuss the identification and optimal management of patients with high-risk multiple myeloma and further comment on the prognostic value and clinical use of MRD. Dr. Paulin and Dr. Popad also discuss the management of frail patients and further highlight the impact of the recent approval of teclistamab by the European Commission. My name is Rakesh Popat and I'm a haematologist at University College Hospital London in the UK. And I'm here in California at the International Myeloma Society Annual Congress. And I'm really pleased to be joined by my colleague, Charlotte Paulin, who's based at the Royal Marsden Hospital. So Charlotte, we've been learning a lot about how to manage high-risk patients. And I know that the UK has contributed a lot to the evidence here. So what's your take on how we should be managing high-risk multiple myeloma patients who are newly diagnosed? So I guess the most important thing from my point of view is that we should identify who these patients mm. are up front and then design trials or new treatment strategies that we can then use to treat these patients specifically. Because we know that in the trials that we've done to date, high-risk patients tend not to benefit as much from new treatments as everybody else in the trial um, and a trial like this is the Mark 9 trial that um, we've been running in the UK led by Martin Kaiser one of my colleagues and and Matt Jenner in Southampton and this trial really looked at kind of intensifying therapy not less not only in the initial stages of therapy but as you know after um, stem cell transplant with more intensive consolidation and more intensive maintenance therapy mm. for longer for patients and the initial results that they presented um, earlier this year showed really um, improved outcomes with this approach when compared to prior, prior approaches that we used in the myeloma 11 trial for example and so that's kind of really interesting to think about how we could change not only the agents that we use but how we deliver those agents and in what intensity to improve outcomes for patients. Yeah I mean clearly that's a very innovative and groundbreaking trial. I mean across the globe there's been other initiatives in high-risk myeloma. We've got DARA, KRD, we've got isotuximab, VRD and KRD coming through. Did you see any differences between these, these approaches both in terms of efficacy and maybe tolerability? Yeah, I guess it's interesting to think about how they might be um, delivered and how feasible they might be in mm. the UK context as well and how we could yeah. apply that to kind of our own specific um, kind of circumstances. And I mean, I think that it's really interesting thinking about delivering um, lots of these novel agents together, but that obviously increases the cost of those combination sure. therapies that we would be trying to mm. deliver. And so kind of interesting to think about ways of trying to, to overcome that perhaps in the, in the future or how we might hope to be able to deliver that for, for patients. Mm. And then just talking about how, how we identify patients with high risk, in the MUC9 Optimum study, we incorporated the use of the Sky92 platform with gene expression profiling. Now, that's not something we routinely do. So, so just in terms of how in the day-to-day -day clinic, how would you identify someone who you'd consider to be high risk? So we think the most important thing is that we do good fish analysis yeah. on all patients at baseline. I think that is something that we now do in the UK and everybody get, should, should be having that mm. at first diagnosis.
basis and through that we should be able to identify the fish lesions that are associated with uh, high risk outcomes. Clearly in the MUC9 trial, yeah, as you say, we used um, gene expression profiling as well, which does identify a, a different group of patients. They're, they're not completely overlapping with the fish high risk groups um, and that helps to identify other patients who would be high risk. But it, it's important that we make sure that this is going to be a deliverable platform. Um, and I know in the radar study that um, also has a separate uh, pathway for high risk patients, that that's not based on gene expression profiling, that's based on the kind of standard yeah. diagnostic tests that we have yeah. available. So two slightly different approaches yeah. to doing that, but still trying to identify high risk patients and both also thinking about other features of high risk disease. So um, MUC9 included patients with plasma cell leukemia, for example, um, and then clearly going forward, we want to think about other measures, perhaps using extramedullary disease as a marker of high risk to try and make sure we're capturing um, all of the patients who have uh, the potential to relapse early. I think one of the really important things is that we try and decide how to do that and all agree on a way of defining high risk. And I think that's something we're going to be talking about this afternoon in, in um, the high risk session in terms of how to make sure that that's standardised so that we can then um, start to compare different approaches because at the moment studies that are looking at high-risk disease tend to use slightly different definitions mm. of that. So I guess from a UK perspective it's important that everyone understands that high-risk patients should be treated differently to standard-risk patients. We've got evidence that mm. the quadruplet regimens are effective, that we do need to maintain dose intensity and dose density and also post-transplant I think what the MUC9 B trial showed very nicely is that you need to give more prolonged consolidation mm. and maintenance compared to the standard lenalidomide monotherapy approach which, which we, we would otherwise routinely use. Yes, I agree. And clearly at the moment, that's not something that is easy for us to deliver yeah. in the confines of um, what's uh, currently NICE approved and that we can deliver. And so we're, um, through these trials, have access to different approaches. And so particularly for high risk patients, trying to recruit them into clinical trials is, mm. is really key to try and help improve, yeah. improve outcomes and then incorporate those things that we learn from the trials into hopefully into, into routine uh, practice as well. That's right. And so you mentioned the RADAR trial, which mm. is our frontline trial for transplant eligible patients. And, and the RADAR trial, as you pointed out, is distinguishing patients down a standard risk pathway and, and a high risk pathway. And then following the stem cell transplant, patients are stratified according to their MRD status. So we've, we've just had a session this morning at the IMW about MRD, looking at different techniques and thresholds. And MRD testing isn't standard of care in, in, in the UK, but, but do you think that there's an important role for us to be using this? I do. I think there's an increasing body of evidence showing that if you um, identify that patients have achieved MRD negativity post their induction therapy post transplant, that that is associated with improved outcomes. That's mm. important information both for prognostication for patients and potentially moving forward will help us determine the best treatment strategies, and that's something that radar will hopefully answer but it does mean that we will need to incorporate that into a more standard approach um, which is done in some centres we um, do that locally but it's not universal across the, mm. the UK so mm. it's something that I think we need to, to pay attention to how we should do that is clearly the next um, important question and um, most of the experience in the UK and previous clinical trials is from using flow cytometry based assays um, for MRD and we recently looked at an analysis of the myelin 
myeloma 11 data looking at patients having glenalizumide maintenance or observation mm. um, subdivided by their MRD status based mm. on flow using um, a cutoff of around 10 to the minus 5 although we had as we had this morning maybe 10 to the minus 6 is a little more um, sensitive and associated with yeah, even better outcomes so defining the precise cutoff and then trying to standardize that across labs in the UK is clearly where yeah. we would be looking to go or potentially thinking about using a different technology so perhaps using a sequencing approach instead of flow but that's probably less widely available even right now so maybe harder to implement yeah standard practice no, no i agree I, I think minimal residual disease is a technique that we really do need to be implementing in the uk um as you said the threshold is important and at the moment the assays tend to be around 10 to the minus 5 which is the international standard but it's clear that patients who achieve that level of mrd negativity still do really Labs. What we're hearing about today is, is the, the prognostic importance of sustained MRD negativity and also the prognostic importance for patients who lose MRD negativity. And so, for example, um, previously the MASTER trial, which was a study involving uh, CD38 antibody carfilzomib, rovimid, and dexamethasone for high-risk patients, and patients stopped treatment when they had sustained MRD negativity, we were just hearing that these patients have a higher incidence of relapse when you stop treatment. So my take on that, Charlotte, and I'm interested to see what you think, is that for the high-risk patients, you do need to continue treatment despite achieving MRD negativity. Yeah, I think that's really important. And clearly what that trial, um, it's given us really excellent information, mm. but what it didn't do was randomise patients at that point yeah. between stopping and continuing, which mm. would obviously answer that question. I think that is really important before we start adapting therapy based on MRD to make sure that we've got a randomised that shows us that that is an appropriate thing to do. We looked at sustained MRD negativity also in the maintenance data from myeloma 11 and showed that even if patients were um, MRD denegative, continuing on lenalizumide maintenance appeared to be associated with better outcomes. Okay. So yeah. you know, it's not it's not clear that you yeah. can stop if you're yeah. MRD negative. And so the, you know that was done at um, six months after starting maintenance. Mm. Maybe if we'd looked later, so maybe two, three, four years later, sustained MRD negativity, then maybe you could stop but we don't have data to, yeah. to fully support yeah. that at the moment so for the moment for me for example maintenance till progression remains standard but interesting to think about studies that might show us hmm. that we maybe don't need to do that um, going forward. So of course the myeloma uh, 15 radar hmm. trial is going to be integral to telling us how best to use MRD as a decision point hmm. as well as a prognostic marker and just just this morning we had, there was data from San Francisco where, pay, where they were actually using MRD as a, as a decision-making tool and the outcomes were supposedly improved mm. if you were doing that. So it's so interesting stuff to, to come through, I think, in radar as it comes through. Yes, I think that will really yeah. provide good information and all because that's clearly being done in UK labs then also helps yeah. us to build the kind of experience and knowledge around doing that in our own uh, Absolutely. setup. So. So, so, so I guess if we move across to frailty now mm. um, in that we know that the, most of the myeloma patients are elderly but, and despite them being elderly, we do have some very fit patients. Um, and conversely, we have patients around the same age who can also be frail. Now, you published some really important work, I think, from Myeloma 9, that demonstrated that for the elderly patients, the performance status was out-trumped by SS score. Maybe you could just expand on that a little. Yeah, so it was from myeloma, the Myeloma 11 Sorry, trial yeah. again. So um, we looked at really the major contributor to PFS and OS by decade age. Mm. 
So we focused on age in that trial because we hadn't done frailty, um, full frailty assessments um, and found that as patients get older, the, the contribution of um, cytogenetics of the molecular risk status, mm. which is so key in the younger, fitter patients, becomes less as patients get older. It still yeah. plays a role, yeah. but it's but then outweighed by performance status and um, things that indicate that patient frailty mm. is starting to play more of an important role. Yeah. And that really, you know, I think it is really important we think about it as frailty, not about not as age, because we know that sure. people um, become frail at different rates. And the IMWG frailty score, for example, helps us to mm. define that by not only looking at age, but by um, activities of daily living and comorbidities. Um, but importantly, that score, although it nicely divides patients into um, three categories, fit, less fit and, and frail, um, doesn't tell us exactly how to treat those patients. And so that's something that we are trying to answer in the UK fitness trial on myeloma 14, where we're looking at randomizing patients between having upfront dose adjustments based on their degree of uh, frailty or having a standard approach, which would be to give full uh, doses of and then adjust um, depending on their toxicity. And this is a trial being led by Gordon Cook and Graham Jackson mm. in the UK and um, hopefully will provide some answers as to how we can use that score to determine differences in, in treatment delivery. So in the last couple of days, we heard that teclistamab, which is a bispecific T-cell engager targeting BCMA, has conditional approval by the European Commission. So this is the first bispecific antibody to gain approval for multiple myeloma. So clearly a big change to the way we're delivering myeloma. What's your um, experience with, with, with these types of agents and, and how do you think that we can implement this sort of treatment in the UK once we have UK approval? Yeah, so hopefully the UK approval will follow fast on the European approval that we're um, kind of excited about in the mm. last few days. Um, we've run several of the studies looking at bispecific antibodies, as I know you have as well locally. And I guess our, the major experience is that we're moving from often delivering therapy as an outpatient at the for relapsed refractory mm. um, disease to the need to, to admit patients for monitoring mm. to start with. So I guess that's one thing that has an impact on how we deliver yeah. therapy um, within the UK, but really something that we need to overcome because the response rates we're seeing with the bispecific antibodies are so uh, such a big step change different to our previous um, standard of care in these lines of therapy. So, you know, we're seeing 70% response rates across yeah. lots of the studies yeah. or about that across lots of the studies. And so that's really um, exciting for patients and makes such a difference to, to kind of how we can deliver therapy and the outcomes from that yeah. point forward. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so as you say, response rates between 60 to 70% for these, and we've got a medium progression-free survival on, of teclistamab for just under 12 months, uh, whereas standard of care would be expecting a, a response rate of 30 to 40% and a PFS of about four months. So clearly very different outcomes. As you say, the, the challenges that we're going to face in the implementation is, is the admission for the step-up dosing due to the risk of cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity. But also, we, we're also seeing an increased incidence of infections. And we do know that patients are requiring intravenous immunoglobulin support. Um, how do you find that? 
because that's something again that we're not used to doing so much. Yeah, so I guess we know that patients with relapsed refractory disease will often have an increased risk of infections, but perhaps the spectrum of infections is a little different to yeah. what we're used to. And um, so whilst we've started using prophylactic antibiotics a bit more, maybe we need alternative approaches. And as you say, you mentioned the use of intravenous immunoglobulin. Um, potentially also we'd love to be able to deliver preventative anti-COVID yeah. um, antibodies yeah. um, to, to these patients as well, given that that's still a risk for, for mm. our patients. Um, that has its own challenges. Some of these things are differently regulated in the UK as they um, compared to elsewhere in the world. And so we need to work to try and make sure that um, we fully understand the risks of infection and how we can help mitigate them and then communicate that to make sure we can sure. try and uh, deliver that for yeah. patients and, and, and prevent infections and Absolutely. deliver it more safely. But clearly we're all very pleased that, that, that this antibody has now been approved and we're really excited to see what else comes through with the immunotherapies. Yeah, so I think both the bi-specifics and the CAR-T data that's coming out, you know, really uh, are really exciting and a massive step change yeah. for patients with relapsed refractory disease. Great. Thank you so much for talking to me, Charlotte. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Until next time. Thank you.